Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about tech, innovation, and the future. I've lived for the last several years in New Jersey, closer to Philly than to New York City, but we still feel the kind of centrifugal pull of the largest metropolitan population center in America. And New York has always felt like a fact of life, uh, a presence just on the horizon that you just take for granted. It's been there. It's there. It'll always be there. But what if the peak of New York City is already past? If COVID-19 has exposed an ongoing and fundamental reordering of urban space in the U.S.? Has, for example, the fundamental logic of living in expensive, crowded cities changed as the number of Americans working remotely spiked during COVID-19? Perhaps not. Perhaps New York City, San Francisco, and other hubs of innovation and finance will rebound back to their pre-COVID-19 norm, but I don't think that's as guaranteed as you might think. So I've asked economist Peter Van Doren back on the show to discuss the possible de-urbanization of America. Now, Peter, you've done some research into which counties have been hit hardest by COVID and have had the highest rates of COVID mortality, and there appears to be some sort of relationship to population density. Can you explain that for us? Well, I mean, we all know that New York and New Jersey are densely populated, and the question is how much more than other areas of the United States? And I just went to the data today, and again, these are 2010 census, right, the 2020 census data are being tabulated as we speak. So um, it's important to remember how dense New York and and, and, er, and close-in suburbs of, of New Jersey are. So the most densely populated county in the country is Manhattan. It's at 69,000 people per square mile. Brooklyn is 35,000. The Bronx is 33,000. Queens is 20,000. San Francisco is 17,000, Boston, 12,000, Chicago City is 12,000, D.C. is 10,000, Alexandria County, Virginia is 9,300, Arlington County, Virginia is 8,000. Now let's go to Dallas, it's 2,700. And then L.A., L.A. County is 2,400 people per square mile. Wow. I mean, so an order of magnitude less than... (laughs) New York. Oh, just, I mean, Manhattan, 69,000 people per square mile. And then LA is 2,400. Wow. So, so, I mean, we both, everyone, we all get intuitively that, you know, Dallas, important city, New York City, important city. But I'm not sure, it certainly never occurred to me that there was that large of discrepancy between the density of the two. Now, again, LA, I mean, these are counties and there's lots of LA County that actually isn't inhabited. It has the hills, you know, the, so again, this isn't, there are dense parts of, so Los Angeles, parts of Los Angeles are dense, but again, sort of in the 8,000, 9,000 people per square mile range, um, which is again, like Arlington and Alexandria counties in Virginia. That's what, that's what LA, where, where people live in LA, that's sort of what LA is like. And so what I'd like to see is a regret, you know, kind of a scatter plot. And, and uh, it's, I I've, don't have a research assistant actually sort of do this, but again, just what the simple scatter plot does of county population density versus county COVID-19 deaths. And then it'd be interesting to look what that, how tight the relationship is and then what the outliers are. 
certainly San Francisco might be an outlier. That is, it's pretty dense, but it, my understanding is that its fatality rate has been rather low. And, and then we get into this discussion of whether Governor Newsom's lockdown orders were, quote, earlier than Governor Cuomo's, and then whether that played a role and, and all of that. And again, there are researchers engaging in this uh, statistical exercise, and I don't think we have the answer yet. But certainly, population density and respiratory pandemics are not good yeah. for each other. Which, I mean, there's a long history of that, right? I mean, like, uh, whether it's the Black Plague or uh, cholera, you name it, when you it, – it, it's cities that get hit the hardest and the denser cities, the, the harder than less dense. I mean, you know, the London uh, or – I you know cities that were uh, Paris versus smaller regional hubs and the like. So, I mean, there's a kind of an intuitive sense to that. When we go around the world, then if is doing that within the United States, and then if you go around the world, you get some puzzles, which is um, Hong Kong and Seoul. I read a uh, an op-ed piece that said. I mean, Hong Kong is denser than Manhattan. Hong Kong is dense. And a, a piece by Ezekiel Emanuel, who's a bioethicist, bioethical uh, professor at Wharton, uh, at Penn, uh, he claimed in an op-ed that there's only four COVID wow. deaths in Hong Kong. <laughs> I was like, what? Wow. Again, I don't know whether I haven't seen any follow-up on that, but I've certainly read other papers that suggest in dense Asian cities, uh, the death rate has been much lower than in Europe, in Italy, and in England, and in the United States. And then, so there's been a sort of a discussion about maybe it's masks, maybe it's contact tracing. But then I've also seen something about the SARS epidemic that hit there in 2003, um, and they learned and I'm using that in quotes, some sort of uh, things. But again, there's pushback, like Japan closed all its schools, but like I think Taiwan did not. And so there's there's all this variation around this notion of population density. And then I think still lots of puzzles about is, is population density the biggest explanatory factor in whether anything else is is going on yeah it's hard to tease out any one uh you know any one variable i mean i have heard like when it came to mask wearing in a lot of east asian countries it is commonplace even not during a global pandemic for people who are sick to wear masks as a kind of polite nod to the fact that you know you're more likely to infect other people and so like mask wearing is a commonplace thing it's not a, a new thing that take that during the global pandemic and that doing so you might still get the virus but the viral load you know the number of fomites or viral particles um that you receive and the dose that infects you it, it, it appears there is some early evidence i've i've read that the larger your initial dose of virus the lower your survival rate is the higher you, you know the higher chance you are of of dying as as like what happened with that the whistleblowing doctor in China who would have gotten a very large yes. dose, yes. even though he was my age yep. and died, um, that that dose viral load matters and that masks, if nothing else, they might, whether or not they stop transmission or slow transmission, they might just decrease 
the, the amount, the viral load that is received and so save lives. But who knows? Again, there's trying to isolate any one variable here is is tough. Um, but I've read what you've read, that the, the East Asian tradition of mass and the acceptability of mass seems there's lots of people are thinking that that's that that's part of the equation. Well, you can imagine, you know, applying that in the U.S. Uh, going forward, that those norms. And I've heard, like in New Jersey, I think because we're part of the greater New York and Philadelphia metropolitan regions, mask wearing. I have not seen someone not wearing a mask at a store since March. Like mask wearing is like a hundred, almost a hundred percent in public, from what I can tell. Um, but in places, I've heard in like Texas, you know. I don't know what the rate is, but it's vanishingly low. People just – the norms have not shifted even in like cities in in Texas or Florida or the like. And uh, you can imagine though maybe a norm in the future that people in very dense cities will wear masks more frequently than they would. you know. But that norm won't percolate out into regional cities or into rural areas. I, I, I don't know. It would be interesting to, interesting to see. Correct. Yeah. Um, yep. Now – one, so so we have though some sort of notion. It does appear to track with American statistics uh, that denser cities have had not just higher, you know, they're not just clusters of you know hot spots for COVID transmission, but do appear to have a higher mortality rate as well. Um, that doesn't seem to be connected though to like overloading hospitals. I mean, it, I don't think I've seen a case yet. I mean, the big thing we were concerned about at the beginning was that there would be so many cases that hospitals would run out of ICU units, would run out of ventilators. And so people would die because they weren't receiving those forms of treatment. That does not appear to have yet happened. Um, so I agree. There was – you remember the Javits Center? I mean, there was all this publicity about the Navy hospital ship uh, going to New York Harbor and then the – conversion of the Javits Center into a temporary hospital unit. And, and I also remember the D.C. Convention Center, Mayor Bowser, right? There was a flurry of publicity about the D.C. Convention Center being converted into, uh, in effect, hospital rooms through partitions and all of that. And we went through that whole exercise and then quietly kind of never used it and tore it all down. So... Or, well, I, I think so. And the Navy ship returned to its port with great fanfare. And um, so we didn't, the, the worst epidemiological outcome that the epidemiologists were worried about, which was, in effect, peak exceeding peak hospital capacity, I think you're correct that that um, has not occurred yet in the, in yeah. anywhere in the United States. And it's not to say that that, was impossible. I mean, it, we we also took a bunch of very sh- severe measures and shutdown measures. So, I, I mean, there's always that you know. Um, I don't know if this is survivorship bias, but you know, people have been pointing possibly to the success of the shutdown to say that we didn't need to shut down in the first place. And there's a logical fallacy there, um, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Um, so so I, I don't say that to say that we shouldn't have had the shutdown per se. I'm just observing the fact that. Whatever you say about the higher mortality rates in, say, New York City, it's not because we exceeded hospital capacity. Um, so, I think but that's correct. The, New York City really has been disproportionately affected, not just in the, the you know, number of mortalities and the, the number of people who have uh, 
had transmission. I mean, it, it's affected the the city's population, the economy. I, I saw somewhere that five uh, percent of the population of New York moved out of the city in March and April. Um, the estimated New York City population just fell five percent, you know, in a matter of weeks. Uh, as people, I, I think it was a lot of like white collar workers, uh, you know, Wall Street and the like, who went to their vacation homes and, you know, I don't know where they have vacation Correct. homes up Hudson River Valley, Maine. That well, kind I remember of place. there was a flurry of the governors of Florida and Rhode Island were going to have uh, police checks at the border <laughs> for anybody with a New York license plate, and uh, Rhode Island was. Uh, most aggressive in that people on the way to Cape Cod and Massachusetts didn't want anyway. Remember, yeah, there, yeah. I mean, we've, we've already gone through enough that we've forgotten about the panic about New Yorkers uh, leaving. Now governor Cuomo is jokingly now that Florida is kind of taking off in cases and New York is declining. Cuomo jokingly talked about banning Floridians from coming <laughs> to New York. Um, yeah. And so we'll, <laughs> Uh, we'll see how that plays out. But yes, there were uh, the more affluent zip codes in Manhattan, in New York City. Uh, those people went and they went quickly and they went elsewhere. Uh, yes. And I think someone did note that um, it'll be important, whatever happens to the future of cities like New York, um, that this really is just a acceleration and it might be a temporary acceleration. I mean, lots of people are going to move back, presumably, um, of a trend that New York City has been shrinking since 2017. That the pop, you know more people have been leaving than coming in for several years now, um, and uh, you, so it's it's not as if you know if we tell this story, it'll be tempting, I think, for future historians to tell the story of the decline of New York City and start with if New York declines, right? Um, uh, Lots, lots of uncertainty still going on here in contingency. But if if New York goes into another kind of downward cycle, like it did in the seventies and eighties, um, it'll be tempting to tell that as a pandemic induced story rather than a something that preceded that. Um, I, I guess the question is this: like, what would it take? I mean, I, I wonder about this all the time. I'm I'm not a city person at heart. I know you're not either, Peter, since you live out in the suburb in Maryland. Um, I'm not the kind of person who wants a, you know, a second story walk up in, in Manhattan or whatever. Uh, I like having a little space. I like being out. So I, I'm not the kind of person inclined to cluster in a city. Um, but cities are these kind of quasi-mysterious organism to me. Uh, lots of people prefer to be in cities. I know there's lots of jobs there. And there's these like knowledge clustering effects and uh, network effects that happen in industries. You know, Wall Street's there and it, every new uh, financial firm has a benefit from being close to the other financial firms. So you get these these network clustering effects that help build urban, urban economies and, and demand for people, population growth. Um, but what is it that causes a city – I mean, why does that logic sometimes just stop? Like there are cities that have had the logic of network effects and clustering and then that just changes. Like, I mean, it happened in New York City in the 70s. The logic of being in New York City temporarily shifted for a decade or so and like something like 10% of the New York population left during that time span. Um, 
what, what do you think, Peter? Why why does that kind of thing happen in general? Why did that happen in New York City in the 70s and 80s? Could that be happening now? Um, well, in my adult scholarly lifetime, all my training in graduate school was about cities were dying. And every Brookings book and every AEI book and Cato was young and didn't really have much in the book way early on. And, and But all the urban courses I took and then taught were all about, oh my God, we need to save cities. And then flash forward to 2000 and the mid 2000s, the mid 2000 teens. And we're worried about the exact opposite, which is there's all these people that ought to be able to move to cities and ought to go to cities, but cities are not too expensive. They've come back so much that all the books on myself from 30 years ago are now all wrong and outdated. <laughs> so I'm, there's this, there's a, uh, but let me parse this out, which is there's different kinds of cities. So of uh, Detroit, for example, the, the, the notion of agglomeration economies in manufacturing, which was historically what New York was about, right? It was a port. You could ship things by water. You could assemble labor and raw materials, and then you could, manufacture things in cities. That's what, so prior to say 1950, that's what cities were about. Well, think of manufacturing now. I mean, think of the auto plants in the United States. They're all small towns. Yeah. Well, they're, they're in Alabama and South Carolina. And right, they're in the right. middle of, no, I mean, and they're near interstates. They're near, I mean, certainly transportation and all that, but. Uh, they're not they, in cities. They need yeah. to be yeah. near a harbor to get raw materials and to have immigrant labor work in a factory setting. Wow. That's changed. So then, so now cities are white collar employment. So now we're, we have to ask the question, given how expensive cities are, why do firms up until now, why have firms found it useful to locate in cities, even though they have to pay higher wages uh, because of housing costs and things like that. So, all the white collar work associated with corporate headquarters and law and finance and real estate. Why are they willing to pay the price to locate where they do? And the usual econ answer is, well, there's something called agglomeration economy. I mean, there, there must be higher productivity, which is why voluntary firms are voluntarily willing to pay for all this. No one's forcing them to be where they are. They find it advantageous for firm reasons. The question is, will the pandemic change all that because we're learning that white collar folks don't need to be proximate to each other? I mean, so if, if you look at the real estate section of the New York Times and the Washington Post post-March, what I'm seeing is incredible amounts of concern on the parts of office building owners as to whether or not the demand for that space is going to continue. Um, and then nobody knows. I mean, that's the, uh, so uh, up until recently, the, the central concern of urban economics was the role of zoning in, in increasing housing costs. And we need to get rid of that. And we need to move a lot more people into city. In other words, we need to increase urban population because of the wage and income benefits that would arise for people who do so. And 
with high housing costs, that's only true lately for college-educated people. For less than college uh, education, the wage gains from a lower-skilled person moving to urban USA are offset by how, higher housing costs. And, and so the, the concern of the literature was they were stuck where they were, and we, now we ought to get them to go to bigger cities, but in fact, given the wage versus housing costs, it was rational for them not to do so post, say, 2012. Uh, and now the question is, hmm, will the pandemic change everything about white-collar work so that we go back through a decentralization move, um, which then undermines all the new books on my bookshelf, <laughs> which say cities are are back and too crowded and we need to, or, or not crowded enough, and we need to worry about how to make them even more crowded. I mean, so it, it could be all that will be useless as well. So there's, I mean, you know, the main driver of, of this conversation is, I suppose, the rise of uh, remote work, uh, teleconferencing, video conferencing. I mean, I, I don't know how much you, you used Zoom and, well, Sendcaster that we're using right now. I don't know how much you used these before. This is, this the is pandemic my first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was your first Zoom meeting ever, like the Cato meetings? Um, yes, I didn't know yeah. what it was. Um, yeah, but as as my colleagues um, tell me, I'm the worst MIT grad that ever existed. I'm bar- barely <laughs> into the 19th century technologically, let alone the 20th. And uh, yeah, you bust out your uh, telegraph, exactly. your telegraph line, tried to get you know. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so we're engaged in this mass national experiment in enforced remote work. And um, I, I think one number I saw was that the number of Americans working at least sometimes remotely doubled in two weeks oh, from yeah. 31% to 62%, which is incredible. I mean, that's uh, that is a generation's worth of change. I mean, it took a generation to go from, you know, the low negligible numbers to 31%. Um, you know, because I can't imagine remote work. I don't know. Now I think about what the trend line, you know, how, how do we go from 0% remote work? Cause by definition work couldn't be remote once upon a time to 31%. But however long that time span was uh, decades, I imagine going from 31 to 62 took two weeks, which blows my mind. Um, and you know, and apparently people tend to like it. I saw a Gallup poll that something like 60 some odd percent, 60% of workers, forced to go remote by the pandemic say they'd like to keep doing it even post pandemic. So it appears to be relatively popular and I've seen signals like Twitter, Facebook, they've both both announced an indefinite extension of working from home. Um no, these are big I mean it, so it looks like the, it might stick. Cato's own discussions. I mean you you and I uh resided on the 6th floor of the Cato building and we had many random interactions because of that physical proximity. And since you and I have, since Cato shut down the building in early March, you and I have not interacted at all. And that that is a cost. On the other hand, uh, my commute was three hours a day and yours was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Even, I mean, yours was hugely long if because uh, you live yeah. in New Jersey. And now you're thinking of living even further. Maine, and, yeah. Uh, 
so I, I, I've always been a believer in the Cato people ought to show up and talk to each other, but some of my colleagues never were there and they're productive. And, and so this is a, I mean, I, I I'm torn because I wake up, I sleep more. I don't I mean uh, the roads are it, all the infrastructure of cities is built around taking millions of people every day and taking them from somewhere and taking them and putting them somewhere else and then reversing that eight or nine hours later. And wow, what if we don't need any of that? Yeah. So I I guess the question is, is the benefit of not having to, of not having that commute of being better rested of all those things, does that offset the downside of the lack of kind of uh, I think Tyler Cowen called it intellectual frisson, you know, the interaction, like what, you know, our conversations in the hallways and uh, Peter Gettler, the head of Cato is wrestling with this and he's torn. Uh, He knows both of the things we're describing, which is in the largest cities, you spend a lot of time getting to and from work to, and, and getting affordable housing. And yet you do that because of this, this interaction that occurs that, uh, uh, the, the sum of the of the togetherness is greater than the you know the separate components and and yet I enjoy my now ten second commute down the <laughs> yeah, stairs yeah. <laughs> and and uh, are you are you still in your are you still so, in your uh, pajamas Peter <laughs> That's, you don't have to answer that <laughs> no, no I don't I actually ju- I, I I haven't worn pants I mean I wear shorts now and I. I haven't worn a, a dress shirt. I mean, you know who I feel badly for? The dry cleaners. They need dry cleaner. I talked to mine. I and the woman who cut my hair. I actually gave her extra money. I mean, I I said those of us who are lucky enough to have salaries that aren't dependent on the pandemic, uh, I ought to keep my spending up for the small businesses in the way that I would have in under normal circumstances and. I tried to give my dry cleaner extra money. Uh, I said, charge me what I, you know, 20, I don't know, $25, $30 a week. Now I'm down to two pairs of shorts every other week. And it's like, wow. His, I, I said, how are you doing? And he said, not good. And and so all of, all of this, how much of the economy depends on us toing and froing from houses to workplaces every day. It, it's, we're learning how much that is and will that come back or not? And I, we're conducting a gigantic experiment. I, I, I suppose I'm not entirely sure. I, I'm no expert, but I was thinking about this. We, we've done this big transition. So just take one sector of the economy, which is food. I mean, like we all have to eat and we have in huge numbers transition from eating out as much to eating in. Uh, so now there are still takeout and the like, but people are buying more at grocery stores. People are cooking yes. more of their own yes. food. And this is bad for restaurants, of course. And it, that involves lots of economic disruption. There's people who were, you know, capital that was geared towards building and maintaining restaurants, labor that was geared towards working at restaurants has been disrupted. But it's not clear to me like in the long term, that that would be a bad trade-off that people. Oh, but the New York Times had a very interesting analysis, which is based on Harvard Harvard research, 
most recessions, this recession is very, very, very different. And the time showed that consumption by zip code and income, the consumption, and this is done through Visa, in effect, charging, right, and debit card data, and that usage has dropped off the most in the richest zip codes. And the Times has discovered, much to its chagrin, that in the unequal economy that they've all, that the Times has always complained about lately, the little people depend on the consumption driven by affluent people, and that consumption is service-oriented. And all of that has gone away. They've discovered that the consumption reduction in the lowest income zip codes in the United States has gone down the least. And the consumption in the most affluent zip codes has gone down the most. And then in turn, the income of the lowest income people in the United States is worst if they live near the richest zip codes. And the consumption and the incomes of poor people that live mostly among other poor people or not near affluent people has been much more stable. So there's all sorts. So the economy has had transformed into all sorts of people doing, in effect, rest, assisting through consumption of the, the spending of affluent people. And so I'm just pushing, yes, we, the economy can and will restructure, but all those people that waited on everybody in restaurants, what are they going to do now? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's restaurants. It's, it's, uh, you know, dry cleaners, it's, uh, uh, masseuses. It's, I mean, like the whole, I, I was thinking about this the other, um, as I was thinking about what I pass when I walk from the train station in DC, um, to Cato headquarters, all those like storefront shops, right. It's subways and masseuses and lots of restaurants, obviously. Um, what, how many people would have to stop working at Cato headquarters? And let's just, we can, you know, in general, people working in, in offices, white collar workers in offices in DC well, or New York City. Well, think of all the eateries. Think of all the eateries near Cato. Nobody- how many of them would, if, if, if 10% of their customer base dried up, that might be enough to put them all out of business. Oh, it's, I mean, their margins 10%. are. 10%. I mean, the I, I suspect. You know the the subway right next to Cato. It hasn't had anybody in it. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, I, I don't mean ten percent during the pandemic, but even if after, because of you know, let's say some percentage of the people who left in New York to live out, and now they're going to work remote, and then some percentage of people are going to do a, a hybrid, right, where they come into the office instead of five right. days a week, they come into the office three days a week and work remotely too. Or, you know, as what percentage of daily foot traffic is going to decrease permanently as a result of this? How many people before it basically devastates, you know, like it might, the because the, as you say, our urban economies in particular are so driven by this like support service infrastructure for white collar office workers correct and how many of those office workers leaving is enough to just undermine that entire ecosystem i think we're i don't, about to, I don't have any we're about to find out <laughs> yeah yeah it's um... so i mean I, I i've gotten more pessimistic i think as I, I, my my 
I used to have the same intuition as the books on your bookshelf, which was that cities are here to stay um, because of the network agglomeration effects um, that we, we, and again, I, I'm a big, you know, YIMBY person. We need to reduce zoning restrictions, build more density. That conversation feels, it, it's not untrue. I still think we should reduce zoning and have, you know, freer, uh, freer housing, more housing density, if that's what the market demands and, and whatnot. So it's not that it's untrue, but it does feel dated, dated. And I've, I've become more pessimistic about the future of, of cities as previously considered. Um, and also, actually, this all started. Yeah, go ahead, Peter. Well, just the other caution as I get older, I realize that, uh, one thing scholars all do, even though we say we shouldn't, is we kind of linearly extrapolate from current stuff and say that's what's going true, to continue. True, true. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> so all the urban, all the books on my shelf were pessimistic about cities 35 years ago. And all they were doing is saying, wow, nothing looks good and it's not going in the right direction. And then before we realized it, it all turned around and we're still debating why and whether policy mattered or not for that <laughs> and so do we or should we extrapolate from that to out how many years and the answer given what we've talked about today is no hell we shouldn't extrapolate the the true answer is we you and i don't know whether uh there will be a fundamental re-examination of office work and commutation and residential patterns or not and things right now seem like wow a lot of people are wondering and thinking about that. And five years from now, will we look back at this conversation as we were onto something or, oh no, we didn't realize World War VII was about to happen. And that, you know, in other words, shock, shocks happen and makes everything we're talking about look kind of uh, ill-informed. Yeah. And of course, because we are human beings and thus vain, we will revisit this conversation <laughs> in five years if we were right and not if we'll we were wrong. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if <you> will. Yes, <laughs> it's like, yes. Right. Correct. <laughs> um, well, and, and there, I mean, to your point, I, I saw uh, some skeptics of this kind of like techno pessimistic trend. And there's been a number of pieces in the Times and the Post echoing my kind of pessimism. And folks have pushed back and said, hey, look, there were companies back in after the last crash in 2007. There were folks after the internet bubble in the, the late 90s, companies that said, look, go ahead and work from home. Uh, how, you know, housing costs are too high here. You, in, you can work from home if you want. And people – and they eventually reversed those policies because folks didn't want to work uh. from home. And, well, I know um, my wife thinks so that I'm they, around too much now. I mean, it is interesting. She wants you get back. <laughs> that, that families are learning that uh, they wanted to be with each other all the time, and now maybe they desire that yeah. less so. And that the ritual yeah. of, of leaving the house every day may actually uh, be an important one that we that we didn't appreciate. But you know, the, the counter argument to to the counter argument is that our technological substitutes are better. I mean, they're not perfect. No substitutes a hundred percent, but um, I mean, for example, yeah, we don't have our intra office, you know, uh, conversations like we normally would, but we are able to have a conversation on Zencaster, right? Like that's a thing that wouldn't have existed even a few years ago, or, you know, we can't have office meetings for, you know, the Cato, general uh, meetings, but we can do it on Zoom 
we can't all meet in the auditorium, but we can on Zoom. And again, it's not a perfect substitute, but it's a substitute that would not have existed in 2007, in 1999, and so on. And so as our substitutes have improved, and, I, I, and that cross applies across a lot of remote work options. I mean, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have had email, uh, um, which makes a lot of remote work possible that wouldn't have been possible in the 1980s, say, with uh, – so, so the, uh, yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, yes, we might just see this as a temporary aberration and cities will snap back to their norm. But if they don't, I suspect it'll be because we have technological substitutes that make remote work. Um, you know, I don't know what the ratio is. Is it a, do we just go from a 76% substitute to a 80% substitute? You know, who knows? But the, it, the cynical part of me, if, if you are a fan of The Office, the old sitcom on TV, the uh, <laughs> I'm I'm cynical about meetings, both when they really happened in proximity and when they happen on Zoom. Maybe we should just stop having <laughs> meetings. <laughs> and that but, most of us think of our colleagues in the way that The Office portrayed, which is that <laughs> we think they're crazy, and so having. To Uh-oh. deal with them less, so maybe use anyway. I'm just am I am I your Dwight? Am I your Dwight? Peter? No, 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 <laughs> no. Because notice what we what we did was we never had a meeting. We what, uh, I, I saw Phil Cook, the CEO of Apple. Uh, he was on CBS Sunday Morning yesterday, and I he said it's just useful to bump into people and talk about stuff and i that's what you and i did we never you and i never had a meeting uh it, in fact i i'm very i'm anti meeting i just think that I, I don't know what purpose meetings have other than to lead to sitcoms like the office <laughs> uh and <laughs> and you know teams and this and that and the other. i mean i just kind of roll my eyes but Smart people interacting randomly. Yeah, I get that. I think that's uh, what that's what that's what offices are about. Yeah, and that builds. I mean, not only does it lead to innovation potentially or uh, productivity boost, but also just the kind of like sense of camaraderie, a willingness to uh, work for the sake of the the body, the corporation. I mean, corporate body um, that you might not get. Like I. I this is actually something Tyler Cowen in his Bloomberg uh, column worried about, which is that folks, yes, it'll lead to better work-life balance, which it has. Clearly, you're sleeping better. You're sleeping more. You're spending more time with your family, less time at the office. Um, it's you know, true for me, too. Um, but that will lead to a decline and in, in, it'll be a drag on productivity um, and thus a drag on kind of economic growth and, and innovation. And I, it's it's possible. I mean, I can see that. I can see the argument for why such a thing, why remote work would be kind of a net economic drag. Um, he, he, actually, I wanted to ask you about this. He also worried that if tech labor in particular goes remote, that it will become more commoditized, more commodified, less – so if – you know, if you say if you're a tech company in San Francisco and you say, "Okay, look, hey, engineers, you don't actually have to live in San Francisco anymore. You can live in Salt Lake City or in anywhere in the country." The next step or is to Bangalore. say, "Bangalore, 
or Bangladesh or, you know, or India yeah, yeah. in which, and plus we can pay those people a whole lot less. And so his argument was that it would lead to remote work leads to commodification, less compensation, outsourcing, offshoring, and so on. Do you think that's, do you think that's likely? I mean, how would you assess that, that chance? I won't ever, uh, all I'll say is uh, what firms do, what Cato preaches, what firms do is the experiment. And again, sitcoms can reveal things about culture and about whether things are going south or not. So um, the dreaded thing about outsourcing, the most horrible thing in all of our lives is call centers, where you and I have to call somebody to get our cable changed or our warranty for our washer and dryer verified or on and on and on and on. I think, at least for me, the most dreaded experience in the modern Western world is dealing with the call center where the people are uh, obviously not from your culture in any any way, shape, or manner, and you have to interact with them, and you they don't know how to interact with you, and you don't know how to interact with them, and everyone just gets frustrated. And I've talked with uh, a friend of mine actually is a software manager and he manages call centers for his products where customers, these are corporate customers call in to deal with issues involving this software, this particular software. And they've gone through all sorts of outsourcing and non-outsourcing and, and within and outside the United States. And he's gone through all these things and he's um, they're finding out that this Alleged, I mean, there is a labor saving, a labor cost savings involved, but it, it ends up being not worth it because the product, the interaction with the customer is such a negative experience that, uh, they've actually gone back and brought things back into the United States and, and et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I, I, all I'll say is I don't know how all of this will work out, but I know that firms are always experimenting with, uh, whether spending more money on higher quality labor does or doesn't matter for their bottom line. And, and that's as it should be. And uh, the fact that the culture seems to suggest how annoying it is, I would think uh, eventually CEOs don't like seeing how annoyed customers are with uh, de dealing with, with these matters. And uh, they get a better experience if they're willing to spend a bit more on that. That is true. As I listen to you talk, like just thinking through my own like working life and interactions with with uh, you know helplines, customer helplines, it oh, used Lord. to be common. <laughs> like, you used to you used to expect that you would get someone from you know from a you know a, a South Asian call center based. You know that used to be the norm by exactly kind of some, and now it's very it's actually pretty rare. Generally, if you're calling during normal hours, you know like. Uh, whether it's West Coast, the East Coast, eight to five, you know, sometime in that range, um, you're going to get someone in a, a North American based call center. And that's actually been a big change just in my own personal lived experience over the last, what, five, 10 years. Um, uh, to your point, I think, I think it, it's, I, yeah, never really thought about it before, but that's true. Um, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it, I'm trying to think of where I would, so let's say 
because you really don't have to empty out cities entirely. It's not like New York City is going to go away. It's not going to become Cleveland in a decade, even in the worst case scenario. Um, um, But you don't actually have to have that much change before you you do see major disruption. I I was thinking about this. In fact, the the genesis of this conversation began with one of our random office interactions uh, after I read an article about uh, uh, David Tepper – who uh, is a hedge fund billionaire from New Jersey who bought my favorite football team, the Carolina Panthers. And he moved from New Jersey. I think he lived in one of those, you know, North Jersey, uh, New York city suburbs to Florida to avoid the New Jersey income taxes, which are quite high. And um, one guy leaving now, admittedly the wealthiest man in New Jersey at the time, uh, in a good year, probably lowered total state income tax revenue by 2%. And so you don't need many people like David Tepper. Now, there's only one David Tepper. There's only one wealthiest man. But you don't need many folks from that top bracket to leave before you really start worrying about state finances, the structure of the entire government system. And I mean, like um, – Yes, yes. All and so, how, so even if most of those 5% of New Yorkers who emptied out in March and April, if 4% of them came back, if 1% of top earners left permanently and started paying taxes in yeah, Maine or Massachusetts or, or wherever, um, that could have huge ripple effects. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it makes me I, – I feel like I, if I was buying or selling states, I would short New Jersey and Connecticut at the moment. Um, <laughs> I, I love. Well, Connecticut. <laughs> I mean, interesting. What what state has the lowest population growth rate in the United States? The answer is Connecticut. It's very, very affluent and very, very poor all at the same time, and it's not growing. And why isn't it growing? Because it's high state and local taxes. And uh, yeah, I think where do athletes right? Athletes are mobile. Where do all the golfers live? What's their state of residence? The answer is Florida. Can- no income tax, right? Exactly. Uh, so people respond rationally to incentives. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, and in county, I mean, local governments know this. They know that uh, Governor Cuomo doesn't raise taxes infinitely. Mayor De Blasio might try, but Cuomo knows not to do that. And Governor Hogan of Maryland, right? I mean, why? Why would very, very blue, liberal, liberal Maryland. Why does it Republican governors every now and then? And the answer is to kind of keep a lid on things uh, so that the taxes and or then the spending don't get out of hand. Uh, and and I tell you, I mean, the, the, the right Montgomery and Prince George's County, Maryland are about as liberal and blue as as one could get. And yet, and that's where all the votes are in in Maryland. And yet Governor Hogan won election because of the votes from PG and Montgomery County, because the rural vote isn't enough to make Republican governor in Maryland. You need people in the close in, very high income tax paying suburbs. Uh, they they're the pivotal voters in Maryland and they now and then kind of slap the liberal Democrats in the face and say, yeah, I think things are getting out of hand here. And so, Mm. yes. I mean, 
there are kind of two stories about city decline that go on in my head, and I'm not sure how to how to make them consonant. And so, so the one version is the reason why cities go into decline, whether it's Detroit or Cleveland, you know, a lot of Rust Belt cities, is because of broader exogenous factors, like the you know Detroit well, again, they were, because of lower. As I said earlier, they were manufacturing cities. And, right. And so it, as manufacturing changed the structure of global supply chain and manufacturing, the reason for those cities to be able to charge a premium on, you know, on companies and on labor declines and people leave. So it's connected to shifts in in production. Um, the other story I often hear is that it's about taxation. Uh, like Like here in New Jersey, we live in a suburb of Trenton. And Trenton has significantly higher tax rates than the surrounding suburbs. And so why would you choose a place with higher tax rates and worse public infrastructure versus a place with lower taxes and better infrastructure? It's a kind of a no-brainer. So they – in effect, they tax the city to death. So how – how is there a way of making those two stories fit together? They're all, I mean, or is it an either-or? Well, again, I'm a, a, a kind of multivariate econometrician type person. And so when uh, – these kinds of discussions, I, I want to convert them into if we had a regression equation and the left-hand side variable were population and the right-hand side variables were all the things you mentioned, the question is what are the coefficients on those variables and are they different from zero? And so the answer is yes to all of your, in other words, and then you ask, well, what's the magnitude of the coefficients? Is the effect of tax rates bigger or less than the effect of any of the other things you, you measure or mentioned. And I'd have to dig into the data more to answer that question. That's why I won't on the air, but uh, the, Depends, all, all of these things, all of these things have effects, right? And so then we're saying if you're a decision maker and you're faced with trade-offs between raising tax rates and or preserving services, which will cause people to leave more than the other. In other words, if I raise the rate to keep the services good, and I'll use that in quotes, where good is measured by spending, if I keep spending more, should I do that or should I cut the budgets and keep the tax rate where it is and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That varies a lot by the class of people involved. And so, so some people live where they live because of schooling and some live where they live because of proximity to jobs. And all of this matters. And each of us, in effect, maximizes given our budget constraint and given the location possibilities. And so urban economics at its best tries to figure out the answer to all your questions. Um, one thing we I ought to inject in the equation is that in particularly in New Jersey, I know a lot about Trenton. I studied it when I taught at Princeton and then its suburbs. What Trenton does have a very high tax rate, but then what happens is housing values go down so that the total outlays of a household in Trenton are much less on the mortgage and much more on taxes. And then where you live, it's the other way around. You pay more in taxes and, and so. What then you have a disaster like Detroit, and it's 
you can get services that are so bad and taxes that are so high that land values have to fall below zero. And that's why vast areas of Detroit are vacant. Yeah, is in effect you need to to pay people to go there because land prices can't go below zero. Yeah, it, it is a bizarre experience for those who ha- of our listeners who haven't been to Detroit. There's so much open space because they've bulldozed entire city blocks of housing, basically, because um, it became blighted and then it was better to destroy it. It was better for it to be not used. I mean, so the the price goes below zero. To, to, to your point. Um, uh, which it's a striking thing. I've never never really experienced anything quite like driving through Detroit. Um, I mean, to go to that, the hardest thing for an urban manager or a mayor to do is you can cut marginal costs. You can decrease services and expenditures at the margin. What you can't do is just abandon the physical plant. In other words, there's an underlying street and water and sewer and electrical infrastructure which is you can think of as fixed costs. And so Detroit is the epitome of, wow, it's just, you've got, in other words, it was built to handle a million and whatever people, and now it's, it's nobody's there. And yet fixed costs remain. So what happens in the private sector is, uh, this is the mystery of why a factory keeps going, but then it has a fire and then it doesn't rebuild. So you're saying, well, how, how did it, why did it stay in business before the fire? And the answer was it covered its marginal costs, but it's, it wasn't earning any money and, and it was gradually depreciating its physical plant. So when the fire happened, it doesn't rebuild. Detroit is sort of like that. Now, New York, you see would have to, I mean, that happened in the South Bronx in the seventies. I mean, we, there were parts of New York that were like Detroit. Um, Jimmy Carter visited the South Bronx in 77. It was empty, right? It got, it, through arson, it got burned and then no rebuilt, nothing. It was just very high fixed costs. Nobody wanted to be there. And now look, it's actually the low cost housing. It's come back because it, ha- it was lucky to be surrounded by a, a, the rest of New York that, that, that rebounded. And then it, uh, so, it's a long-winded, complicated answer to your to your question. No, it's interesting. Well, and I guess it, we're yet to see whether um, – and who knows? I mean it's going to be up to the aggregated choices of lots of lots of individuals and in cities around the country whether you know they're going to revalue the weight of uh, – well, now the, you know, the, the value of being close to work might decrease slightly because of technological substitutes. So you know, making remote work more feasible or more productive. Also the risk of being in a dense center when there are pandemic type events um, might feel less worth it to some people. You know, how much does that matter on the margin? It's going to be a choice that lots of people are going to be making over the next couple of years. Do, am I willing to pay the premium on that, that condo in, in the Bronx or wherever I live in the upper East side. I'm just saying random areas in New York. Cause I have no idea what any of that means. Upper East side sounds swanky though. It, it is. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Your listeners okay, will laugh. Good, okay. <laughs> okay. So fine. I, I know embarrassingly little about New York city's neighborhoods, but I do know that we live in a time of economic, social, and technological disruption. The once unthinkable suddenly seems quite thinkable. You know, I'd love to hear from y'all, especially those of you who live in big cities. 
How, if at all, has COVID-19 changed how you think about where you live? Have you found yourself considering moving out of the city proper? Or has your company signaled its willingness to let you continue to work remotely even after the pandemic shutdowns are over? Let me know. You can write me at pmatzko, P-M-A-T-Z-K-O, at libertarianism.org, or you can DM me on Twitter at pmatzko. And with that, until next time, be well. This episode of Building Tomorrow was produced by Landry Ayers for Libertarianism.org. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, check out our online encyclopedia or subscribe to one of our half-dozen podcasts.